What's up, party people? This is Stephanie Ghost and Paul, and you've made it to the Take Nothing When I Die podcast. Take Nothing When I Die amplifies and celebrates the wisdom and genius of people who've managed multiple careers in one lifetime. I'm so very glad you made it to the Take Nothing When I Die podcast. I am your host, Stephanie Goes and Paul, and you are listening to episode 19 of the podcast. Can you believe that? We started in January, and so we are making our way through 2020, dropping gems, knowledge, wisdom, and blessing people. And today is no different. We have a delicious conversation with Bayalika Macau that I know you will appreciate. Before we dive in, I am going to give a little bit of fun work, not to be confused with homework, because so many people are home in many senses, uh, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and really literally just sitting at home. So as folks are home, as folks are being radicalized, as folks are watching national and international events, I think that Take Nothing When I Die fits somewhere within that landscape. So I'm asking you, can you please send five people you know your favorite episode from this podcast? You can pick any one. Maybe it's this one. At the end, you might say number 19 is it. It might be one that will help them get to know you more. It might be one that helps explain something you've experienced. Maybe it's some relief that they might need right now. It might be inspirational, motivational, tough love, whatever it is, something that could help someone else. Please identify five folks, send them your favorite episode and tell them to listen. Make sense? Let me know when you do that. You can find us on Twitter at TNWID or on Instagram. It's take nothing when I die all spelled out. Just tag us and send us a message. I did it. Okay, now back to Bealica. This lovely human drops by and shares so much goodness. Not entirely sure how it's possible to jam pack an episode with gems, but I continue to be inspired by and really in awe of my guests on the show. One thing that stands out to me about her is really the way that she processes. And while some may, may shy away from the learning out loud portion of our journey, you know, we kind of like to We'll tell a little bit about the beginning and we kind of skip through to the end to talk about how we're dripping with success after all these hardships, but we actually sometimes skip over the hard parts, the challenging parts, the not so glamorous parts. And Bayalika does not shy away from those. She literally plops you down next to her and gives you the full picture of where she's at and where she sees herself going. It is both lovely to listen and witness that process. So let's make sure we get her official bio in here. Bealika Macau is a Kenyan-born, California-raised former professor of literature and cultural studies who specializes in Black maternal liberation narratives of the antebellum era. After a decade-long career witnessing the harmful impact of colonial white supremacist heteropatriarchy at universities across the US, she left academia in 2015. Soon after she experienced a spiritual rebirth 
that heralded her own liberation and claim of a name she had never heard before that reminds her to be her most authentic aligned self. Bayalika has dedicated the past five years to healing, to traveling, and to working as an intersectional equity consultant. In 2018, she gave a TEDx talk outlining her radical empathy curriculum, which encourages us to unlearn stories we've been taught about who we are and what we believe we deserve. As a lifelong writer, Bayalika has contributed to numerous storytelling shows, both as a performer and a production consultant. Her stories highlight the trauma of peculiar intimacy, a term she coined to describe the privileges and perils of white adjacency about which she teaches and writes in a memoir that explores her professional and personal reinventions. Bayalika currently assists others on their healing journeys via the Peculiar Intimacy Healing Institute, aka Pi High, which combines her academic training and transformative coaching experience and Eight Star Sanctuary, which builds on the life and literature of Octavia Estelle Butler and provides virtual and physical healing space in Northern New Mexico for the collective liberation of Black Indigenous women of color. And although we spoke before the pandemic, it is worth highlighting that Bayalica dramatically downsized and restyled her life based on the belief that she already has everything she needs, which prepared her to survive these extraordinary times. Please meet Bayalica. All right, so we are live with Bayalica. I'm so excited that you are coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to see you. Yes. I'm so excited to be having this conversation. I know there will be so much that we're going to touch on. Before we jump into it, I do want to know where in the world you are. So let our listeners know where you're at. And then also tell us what's going on with you this morning. How are you doing? Give us the real scoop, like the real, real of how things are going this morning for you. Okay, well, for real, for real, I'm doing great. And I'm doing a lot better than I was yesterday, which is always a good thing. I had a good night's sleep after two nights that were kind of rocky. And I woke up early and I realized that I had an extra hour before this interview because <laughs> I got the time changed wrong once again. So that was all good. And where I am, I'm in Baja, California. I'm in Baja, California, Sur, which is the southern of the two states on the Baja Peninsula, which is why I got the time change wrong, because the northern one is Pacific time and the southern one is central time. So I am sitting right now at the confluence of the Sea of Cortez and the River Muleje, which comes through the tiny little port town of Muleje. And that's where I am. And it's very beautiful. And I'm wearing a muumuu and it's February. So (laughs) life is good. Yes. I can feel the sunshine. I can just feel it. I can feel it. It's so good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you. So when we talk about take nothing when I die, you know, we're asking questions that sometimes we're asked and we don't actually care, or we are being asked a question and we kind of give an autopilot answer. One of those questions, and I know you having lived all over the United States, lived abroad, This question often comes up in conversation, this question of what do you do? So like many guests before you, I want to know on a scale of one to 10, 
how much do you dislike the question, what do you do? Well, I've thought a lot about it. And like several of your guests before, I feel like it's context specific. So I don't hate the question unless I can tell immediately that it's really just a mask for, you know, what do you do for money (laughs) and how can you help me get some more? And that just feels like it's not really an honest way to ask you know, about networking or connecting, both of which I'm fine with. I'd love to help people. And if I can help them, I will. Um, But I'd rather be asked that directly. Um, I think it's a complicated question, you know, because there are so many answers or so many things that I do. I like to think of what do I do for what, you know, like, are you asking, what do I do for happiness? What do I do for health? What do I do to feel good? What do I do to relax? You know, all of those questions I'd love to answer. So I'm happy being asked it when I have an opportunity to give a little bit of expansiveness in my answer. But when it's in, you know, the sort of the the person's asking and you don't really have time to answer for real, or they don't really want more than a one word answer. That's less, that's less enjoyable. Mm. But on the flip side of that, I have really enjoyed being able to answer very quickly. Oh, I'm a writer because that that's what I wanted to do as a kid. And it's what I'm doing now. It's one of the things that I'm doing now. But it's my, you know, quick one word answer that I feel good saying it. So sometimes it feels really, I don't know, it feels satisfying to be able to answer it. Mm-hmm. And have you had that one word answer for a while now? Or is this a new recent development? <laughs> good question. I, yeah, it's pretty recent. I feel like, you know, writing is something I've always done. And it's something that has taken different different versions over my life. You know, so I wrote as an academic. I wrote for a long time, you know on a regular basis with a lot of pressure. And I write now with self-imposed pressure, which is a kind of different feeling. And it's, it's not just pressure, it's actually I write because I have to, you know, it's coming out of me, it's, it's, it's what I need to do, it's how I process, it's how I think. And there's a lot of joy in it. So answering that question and saying I'm a writer, yeah, it's, I think it leads people to think I, I do that for money. And while I hope to, you know, make some living off of it at some point, it's not my driving incentive to do the work. You know, it's not like I'm, you know, counting the dollars for each word that I produce. I'm not trying to make a living off of being a freelance writer, which is a luxury to approach my my writing in that way, to not have it be my main source of income, you know? Mm-hmm. So if money isn't driving you, what is driving you? Well, You know, sometimes when I'm answering the question, what do I do? I say I'm a healer and um, my writing is part of that. And my writing is helping me to heal. And ultimately, I'm hoping that it's going to be helping the people who read it to heal as well. With the idea being that writing about my own healing journey is part of healing others. You know, I, I think of my connection to every living being as one that profoundly affects how I move through the world. And the way that I write about that is often an exploration of what has impeded my journey and what has helped it. And so what I'm trying to do is, you know, put into words that are accessible to other people, recognizable, you know, experiences, things that a lot of us have unfortunately been harmed by and ways that we've overcome. And I think that my writing is increasingly honest about that. You know, I I write a lot about accountability and consent 
and complicity. So I think about the ways that I've been complicit with my own oppression and I write about that and I'm trying to write through that process, you know, mm -hmm. to be really honest about it and also to not beat myself up in the process because that's further impeding the growth that I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing the actual writing of the writing is part of the process. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So when you think about coming to this one word answer, like I'm a writer, which you feel very, it sounds, it seems like you seem satisfied. You seem like that encompasses, encapsulates is the other word that's coming to mind, but it takes into account all that you, a lot of what you're doing. Can you talk to us more about the process of getting to that response? And I, I ask this because I think over time, based on where we are, based on context, we kind of contort our answer, right? So even in how you answer the first question is like, it, I'm kind of trying to determine what the other person is trying to get out of me first. And I, I'm hearing that might've been part of your packaging process. At some point, you came to these conclusions that you wanted to define yourself in a very particular way. So can you walk us through, like, what has that progression been like? What has it been like for you to come to that strong conclusion? I am a writer and be satisfied in that. I think the most important piece in the process for me has been the move from being eager to supply an answer that would make the person who's asking it happy to satisfy what they're seeking. I was really good at being what people wanted me to be for a really long time. And I no longer feel like I can play that game. I need to be in alignment with my own values and my understanding of myself. And so I don't want to give a pat answer. I don't want to give a false answer. I want to give an answer that's authentic to my experience and, and my, my identity. Now that said, it goes back again to who's asking. So how much I want to disclose in that you know, <laughs> exchange and whether I'm open to the follow-up questions. You know, I will get asked sometimes, you know, the follow-up of, well, obviously, what do you write about, you know, and <laughs> how far I want to go into a discussion of racialized politics is yeah. often a leading, you know, consideration. Like, am I going to get into it with this person or is this a two-second exchange and do I want to just end it right here, you know? And writer sometimes will stop people and like, oh, that's interesting. Um, in the past, you know, I was a professor for a really long time, for over a decade, and the conversations I would get in about that were interesting because I'd say I was a professor of English and a lot of people assumed that that meant I was teaching people to speak English, like mm -hmm. grammar and <laughs> spelling. And at the college level, it's a little bit more than that. And I felt like I wound up having to give like a little lesson every time, you know, sort of explain like, oh, well, I'm a literature professor and I teach the literatures of you know, African diaspora and I teach this kind of, you know, I teach English literature and I teach literatures from, from the, around the world. And it just, it could become a really expansive conversation, but that didn't always make the people I was talking to comfortable, especially when I started talking about, you know, often what I taught was slavery and the, the history of it and its ongoing legacy and the impacts of it that we're still living with. And that kind of detail, which I'm very interested in, was hard for some folks to, you know, to take in. So the same question now when I'm talking about my writing, I write about trauma, you know, and I write about really challenging issues of accountability and issues of interpersonal relationships, often based on systems of oppression and, and resisting those. So to your question, the process of getting closer to an authentic answer 
really has been about those self-work that I've done, you know, kind of getting closer and closer to understanding who I am, who I aspire to be, and what it's going to take for those to coalesce. And, and also being protective, you know, being aware that I'm open and friendly and I love people. I love talking to new people. I love encountering folks. But I have burned, burned, I guess, enough times to feel like there's, there's a dance to it. You know, am I going to, how much am I going to open up in this particular relationship? I just met a woman the other day in a bookshop here in Baja who was, she, she owns an English um, language bookshop. And I went into her shop looking for a book, obviously, and also thinking like, oh, she's catering to tourists and gringos. And I, you know, I'm a gringo, but I, you know, I don't want to identify myself with that community. And within minutes, she was saying something about how she was a teacher. And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm a teacher too, or I've been a teacher. And we got into this conversation and she used to live in New Mexico where I'm looking to buy a house. And it became this amazing conversation. So whereas I started kind of resistant to connecting, it became this conversation that I'm so grateful to have had. So that's the kind of situation where like, I don't necessarily know, I don't know that other person's story, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to that point, the question I like better than being asked, what do you do? Is what's your story? You know, and I, mm -hmm. I, that's what I usually ask people when I'm getting to know them. It's, I want to know their story and however you want to answer that, you know? Yeah. Have, can you answer that for us? I think you've given us some pieces of your story, but if you were to kind of fill in from what you haven't already shared with us, what what would you say if someone asked you what's your story? Yeah, again, it's context, it's everything. You know, I, I really have to think about how much of the story they want. You know, like I'll just talk forever if that's the opportunity that I'm given. You know, is my story relevant to where I am right now? Like, what, how did I wind up in Baja? You know, I've been traveling since October. I haven't lived in a single set place for any longer than three weeks. So I'm kind of living out of my car and moving from Airbnb to a you know next rental place. And that has made my story a little bit more turbulent. But to get to this place has been an intentional process. So I guess to answer my story question, it's I've been on a constant process of learning about what feels right to me and what doesn't. I've, I lived in Portland, Oregon for 15 years, not consecutively, but ultimately that's a really long time. It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere as an adult. And that used to work really well for me. And, and then, and then it did. And I, I feel like my story has involved catering to whiteness in a lot of ways, professionally and personally. And I've ceased to do that. And that I think is a big part of the story that I'm still living, but I'm also writing through it, you know, and I'm writing through what the un unlearning of that process has been. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's included a lot of things. I mean, my professional life has, has been dominated by working in white, white spaces. Academia for sure has lots of issues with whiteness and white supremacy that it's not encountering honestly or effectively, I think. And I've worked in other professional environments that like advertising, where there's a lot of co-opting of culture as we still see. And I did that for not as long as academic, as academic work, but I saw a lot of the similarities in both, you know, sort of systems that comprise kind of limited environment for people who want to talk about their actual authentic experiences, which challenge 
the institutional hierarchies or challenge what is considered valuable by that institution. And um, so a lot of my story has been kind of bumping up against that and being resistant and challenging from within the institution. And now I work outside of those institutions, but I can reflect back onto them from my own experience and the experiences of the people that I've consulted with and give advice to and you know, my friends, people that I'm hearing from. And, and I feel like that's been a really valuable journey, you know, to be on the inside and on the outside. And my, the stake I have in that game is it's shifted. It's shifted. Yeah. This is kind of bringing me full circle. I know you wanted to discuss the take nothing when I die concept in general. I'm wondering how these pieces of your story are related to take nothing when I die or how you see them related, if at all. So I'm hearing a lot of a lot about your journey and unlearning, untethering yourself to whiteness, not answering in a way that makes people feel comfortable or acceptable to them, working from outside of the system, centering yourself and moving from that space. So segue into what Take Nothing When I Die means to you or what it means to you as a concept. How do those pieces of your story relate to how you see Take Nothing When I Die? I love that question. Thank you. Yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot. I mean, I love the concept. I really, I, I get it. I think it's important. And I specifically feel like within the community of Black women mentoring one another, where that, I guess, the concept comes from, the idea that, you know, you, you want to leave everything. You don't want to take these precious pieces of wisdom and life experience with you. I stand behind that 100%. I also think a lot about my own relationship to what I take and taking while alive on this planet. I want to be in right relationship with the places where I live and the people, the communities that are in those places. I want to think about, you know, not just when I die, but what am I taking right now? And not in the sense of like, am I taking wisdom away or am I taking advice away that I could be sharing, but rather how do I, how do I consume? How, what, you know, asking real questions about what am I taking from the places where I am or the relationships that I'm in versus what am I giving? So I'm constantly thinking about reciprocity and I'm thinking about a fairness of exchange, a kind of symbiotic relationship that I can have with my communities, wherever those are. And being really aware of um, not taking from places that don't want me there, you know? So I, like I said, I've been traveling a lot and I'm traveling right now in a culture that's not my own. And I wanna be respectful of where I am by paying attention to what the needs are, if they if there are needs where I am, and not just assuming like, oh, I love this place, so it's mine to take. Like I can move here because I have an entitled sense of you know the rightness of that. And then back to what I was saying about within Black women's community, women of color, in general, we're trained to give and give and give without end, and to do so to the, to the extent of our own demise. So we sacrifice. And I really feel like take nothing when I die could, you know, in sort of the most extreme sense, leave us feeling like we gotta put it all out there and we gotta make sure that we're giving constantly out, 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 and not in, in, in not having it like come back to ourselves and really being self-nurturing and being self-sustaining because as I said earlier, I feel like my relationship with the world is, and all of ours, is intersecting. It's, it's not, we're not isolated individuals. So our self-care is community care as well. And it allows us, I think, if we're, 
if we're really thinking about that kind of mutuality, like the mentoring that goes from both in both directions, like if I mentor someone, I'm definitely getting something back from them in that relationship. It's not going to just be like I give without end. I think that that is the healthiest version of take nothing when I die as, and not just, again, not just at the end of our lives, but throughout, you know, throughout it. And I think that has led me to consider, you know, boundary questions about boundary issues. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen this meme of the Shel Silverstein uh, book, you know, the giving tree. I saw this recently where the story is that, you know, there's an apple tree and this kid like gets apples from it and like climbs its trees when he's a kid. And then he grows up and he keeps getting apples. He keeps getting apples and the tree grows old. And then he cuts down the tree when it dies and he sits on the stump and like the tree is no more. And it's this children's book. And the, the refiguring of it in this meme was instead of just endlessly giving, the apple tree says, no, we need to have some boundaries. And the kid <laughs> asking for more and more, but it's like, no, we need to set this, those boundaries. So I felt like that really speaks to this idea that we can do so much harm to ourselves. And, you know, there's so many systems in place that are already set up to do that. Why are we helping them? And if I just give everything I've got, and, and not judiciously, not carefully, like determining who am I giving, giving it to and what am I getting in response or in return? I feel like there's a danger, a potential danger there. So I just, I feel like I need to be really cautious about giving in situations where there will be some return. I appreciate you bringing that up. I think the first thing that I thought of was really around what does it actually mean to leave this world empty? And I mean, I don't mean like when we're dying, even in reciprocal relationship. When I imagine take nothing when I die, I imagine someone who may not actually be in right relationship, in community at all. It might be the person who is sitting at their desk day after day with this blog post that they want to push send on. Or this, even I think about this podcast where and Bayalika and I have talked about this a lot, like is everything for public consumption? So I think I, I love the distinction that you're making that the being mindful and critical about the actual taking. So what does that mean? Being mindful, critical about what we are giving and how and to whom. And this other piece, which is like the taking or the leaving empty is for us and us first. Mm-hmm. And for me, that has been the crux of it. And I, and for me, that keeps me in the middle ground, not the extremes of like, I give everything no matter what, or like, oh, I'm holding everything and I'm, I'm overthinking it. There have been times where because I'm on one extreme or the other, I'm letting my conditioning or what society has told me I can and can't say, or my fear about speaking up or being vulnerable get in the way of me leaving something for myself, for someone in my community that I might need to. And that might just be self-care. That's like, you know, maybe this morning I was very tempted. Let me wake up and get to the computer and get, like there's stuff that's happening that nobody sees. This podcast, Mm -hmm. some folks see it, but a lot of, at least for me and how I envision this, how I want to see this impact folks is how do we leave what we know we're supposed to leave like there's stuff that we know we're supposed to be doing and talking about and speaking up on and getting out there and take nothing when i die is a is a reminder of that like don't wait for the blank don't wait for the the things that we're conditioned we're supposed to we're supposed to wait till the perfect time and that 
That never happens. There is no perfect time. And so I, at least for me, that keeps me tethered in the middle. Not like I'm not choosing a side, but it, I'm not even close. I know I'm not close to the extreme of oversharing. I'm I'm, I'm undersharing right now. <laughs> and there's a lot that is not for public consumption. And that's okay too. And I want people to know that those pieces of their journey are just as important as the outward facing pieces that they might be giving or contributing to community. Mm, true that, <laughs> all of it, all of it. And I love hearing about the middle place because that's, that's it. It's just finding a, an option away from the, the binary. Yeah. It's yeah. easy to flip into the all or nothing, you know, it's good or bad, it's healthy, it's not healthy. Like, no, there's a lot more nuance in, in that. And that's definitely something I've learned along my journey, professional journeys and personal journeys, just kind of realizing that that production that you're talking about, this kind of sense of output, 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 we have to have some sort of product for yeah. all of our efforts. We have to have something to show for it. And we have to make sure that someone else can, can recognize it, can even identify it as, as a product, as a, as a result. You know, that's not conducive to health. I have found that to be anything but. And that's, that's something I, I constantly have to check myself on, you know, that sense that, you know, waking up first thing in the morning, like I got to get to the computer. I got to, you know, I got to do something. I got to have like something to show for it. You know, yeah. what is the show? Who is that? Yeah. For? You yeah. know, ultimately, what is the authority to which I feel myself in debt to? Like, who do I have to prove myself to? And that's something that definitely I've had to to come to terms with over, you know, years of struggling to kind of appeal to or appease some sort of outside authority, outside sort of figure that doesn't exist. You know, it's, it's like your mythical someday. It's like, I'm trying to please some thing, some entity or some idea or some concept that doesn't, it's my own imagination. And, and there's also something really, really deeply valuable in the work that doesn't have an external product at the end of it that may be recognizable to anyone, mm -hmm. um, particularly when it is health related. I feel like if I sit in silence and just think or breathe or am slowing my heart rate down, actually that does have a direct correlation with my health and that does have a product, that does have an outcome. You know, I have better health, but that may not be something that I can, you know, Instagram about although I have, <laughs> or it may not be something that I'm going to be boasting about or like getting a paycheck for. And I, it, that, that really goes to my sort of the, 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 what I don't want to take with me. I want to make sure everybody hears that everyone learns from that. That's really the central concept that I want to leave people with, which is really that we are enough. You know, that's it. We are enough. We, we are not, we are not just what we do for money. We are greater than what we do for work and our value lies elsewhere from that. And if all we think we are alive for is to, you know, show our products of our labor, it, it does not make for a healthy life. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that. I, I, is that your, is that your gym or are we going to give, I know we're going to get more from you. I just know. I already know. I already know. <laughs> Before we get to it, I, I do want to say, I want to add, just thinking about those outputs again, you know, if we think about biology, if we think about the science of like human interaction, 
we actually still are impacting other human beings by doing our own stuff. It's yeah. just not something that's prized in our culture. So when you breathe, I, I can even just imagine you going to that bookstore. You did your breathing. And even though you were cautious, there was something that was happening with your body as you were talking to this woman in the store that allowed you to open up. And yes, you shared the story on this podcast. So now more people know about it. But in that moment, you doing something for yourself led to a connection with another human being. And I feel like, again, it's like, it's not, it's not Instagrammable or, you know, there might not be a monetary value attached to it, but I'm seeing the ways in which when we model things for ourselves, like you breathing, showing up, doing your strength thing, which you can tell folks about, which I love, you're modeling for other people in ways that you just telling them, or you, you know, here's a grand lecture about the value of self-care, like what better way for you to actually show me? What better way for you than to actually set a boundary and keep it? And I find that whatever lesson we want people to learn or like have them get it, we can actually do that by being rather than instructing them to do. Like the being is the most important part. So I just, I just want to name that because I know what you mean. I just want to make it clear for our, our listeners that you're mostly talking about products, services that dominant culture has deemed valuable. But like your human connection, valuable. You taking care of yourself and being a model, valuable, just not in the way that dominant culture places a value on it. So, so true. And I, I really wanna emphasize how deeply I was in the matrix of that thinking that, you know, I bought into the dominant values cultures. I was, I was socialized, I was culture, acculturated into yeah. it. I think mo- many of us who are working through these transitions of, of job changes, of, of career changes, life changes, have come from a place that strongly influences us that, you know, tells us that those are worthwhile values to hold. So like I said, for a really long time, I was an academic and I worked in a culture that emphasized outcome and emphasized products. You know, I had strict expectations of my students that they would hit these benchmarks of success and I would ha- I would be able to evaluate them for having achieved those particular, you know, standards. And I, I know I was a good teacher. I am a good teacher. <laughs> and I feel you know, with some hindsight, you know, for, I'll give you a, a, a concrete example. I taught a lot about liberation and liberation from specific, you know, um, structures of slavery, liberation from oppressive thinking, sexism, racism, classism, all of the isms. And I was doing that from a position that was still within an oppressive model to which I was party and I helped to perpetuate it, you know, by giving grades, by giving, again, back to the standards. And ultimately in leaving that profession and leaving academia, I went through a process of my own liberation. And it ultimately felt very much like I was self-emancipating, you know, and living through a traumatic transition from a whole structure of of thinking and beliefs and values and having to just 
radically let those go, which isn't as easy as just, you know, I no longer believe it. It was a process of working through why did I come to believe that this was valuable in the first place? What can I keep and what can I let go? Because again, back to, it's not a binary. It's not like, oh, it's all terrible. You know, everything I did for those years was crap. Like, I don't believe that, but I do believe that there's a different way to achieve the kinds of goals, ultimately, the kind of holistic goals that I had, which included helping my students to understand their own likelihood of freedom. You know, what does liberation look like for me? What am I doing as an individual to impede somebody else's liberation? I really wanted to encourage that kind of thinking to be opening up the possibility of a different way of being in relationship to each other, to the world, to the planet. And like I said, I think I did a good job of that. I achieved that. But even in the process that I was conveying those ideas, I was still buying into these models of productivity is, you know, first and foremost, and, you know, publish or perish and all the things that go along with the, that institutional mindset. So yeah, to get to a place of feeling like I can be enough without having to hold up somebody else's external expectations. It's a process and it's a very valuable one. And it's one that has ultimately led to my sense of extreme radical freedom. Mm-hmm. And it's still, it's still a process. It's still something I'm challenged by. Still unlearning. That's right. Always. You know, I just want to pull out something that I heard, which is I, I didn't hear any kind of judgment about who's in, who's not, who stayed, who didn't. What I heard was that you going on your own journey defined your relationship to that institution. And so you might not have been able to leave earlier or stay longer based on where you were at in your journey. And I think that's really important for folks to hear and remember, again, it's not that binary. Either you're in it or you're out. It really is a journey and there are ways to contribute from outside that are just as impactful as maybe someone who's inside. So I, I think about whether it's academic friends or colleagues that you still have, or other folks who are in spheres that used to be all up in the mix in and now you're outside of, or even just thinking, you know, since October, you haven't lived in one place for more than three weeks. So for, for folks who have, or who are not traveling or not chasing the sun in the same way that you are, what do you think it is that separates you from those folks? And not that it's like a me versus them, but I think when folks listen to the show, they're kind of like, okay, great story. Thanks for letting us know. What about me? Like, that sounds good for you. I don't think I could do it. There's something different. So as you think about that, is there a, something that you've cultivated? Is there a skill? Is there just like something in you? What, what is it that you think allows you to be in a different space and be okay? in the journey that you're on versus the, some of the folks that you've had to leave behind or that you're not as connected to in those institutions? I think first and foremost, I have to acknowledge privilege and the privileges that I have that have led me to be able to make these decisions. At the same time, I want to be really clear that it's not about, it's not just about money. And in fact, it's less about money than I think anyone starts this journey thinking, myself included. The very first dis- dis- discovery that I had 
in this major transition from being all up in it, like you said, to <laughs> I don't need to do that anymore. I and mean, it really was kind of a, a light bulb moment was the realization that I already have everything that I need, period. <laughs> I have everything put, that put I need. Put a T, period. Put a T on that and put it to bed because it's the truth. And, and it was the truth. It was my truth. I don't want to, I can't speak to other people's and say, you know, you'll know that you've got everything when you hit this benchmark because it's not like that. What I did was I sat in realization that I'm no longer going to be an academic. I'm no longer going to be a professor. I'm not going to work for an institution. I'm not going to have a tenure track job anymore. I don't want to participate in that anymore. So what are the things in my life that depended on that salary? What are those things? And do I need to still keep them in my life? Things like gym membership. I did, I did aerial yoga, which is uh, something that I was really, my body was really consistently dependent upon and I, I needed it, you know, and I continue to need it, but I thought I needed it with the apparatus that I was, you know, accessing in the gym. I thought I needed it with teachers and with instruction and a kind of regular, you know, schedule of classes to maintain that kind of fitness. And I felt like, well, I can't afford that. That's a luxury that I, I have to like just do away with because my immediate, you know, training had led me to think like, oh, I don't have this salary. I got to cut out everything that might be considered extra. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to stop eating food that made me feel good in my body. I didn't want to stop taking care of my body. I didn't want to give up things that brought me happiness. But in that first case, it's a very simple fix. I learned how to stretch in the same ways that I was doing in those classes, you know, at home, on the floor, with a rock, <laughs> with a wall, you know, with a old tennis ball to rub against, you know, lots of different, it's very pragmatic ways of achieving the same end. Now, the things that I did lose out on, the community that I had in the classes that I was taking, instruction from people who are trained in their particular craft. But I do think this is something that kind of sets me apart from some folks, which is I've never really felt like I had to get direction from out there. You know, I read a lot. I'm, I listen to people. I talk to people and I'm, I'm always learning, but I also trust myself. I trust that I am the best authority for myself, for my own life. I know better than anybody else what I need and what I want. And I think I've cultivated that over my lifetime to really get to a stage where I can deepen into that trust. And you mentioned my, my daily practice, which I call stramping, um, which is a combination of stretching, trance, breathing, dance, and sometimes strength training. And it's a meditation that I do every day. It's not something I learned from someone else. It's not something I've you know, trained in. It's just naturally what I need to do to keep sane and physically healthy. And it's, it's mostly just about dropping into quietness at least an hour every day, ideally an hour, and to be inside of my body's needs, breathing and moving slowly. It's, I mean, probably from the outside, it looks a lot like restorative yoga, but it also can be lots of other things that I'm drawing from various dance classes that I've taken, movement training, you know, even meditation practices. So I'm pulling from lots of different sources, but I'm not relying on another entity to be an expert authority to which I then mold myself. It's mm. enough to be able to say, 
I know what I need and I have what I need. And that means less luxury items. And what I consider a luxury may not be the same as what you or someone else might consider a luxury. You know, I, I've learned how to cook better and better so that I don't feel like I have to buy food from somebody else that makes me feel good. And I did, you know, I mentioned the privilege and privilege for sure comes from having had an academic salary, from having had a partner who also has an academic salary, from having had an education that makes me employable, whether I, you know, go for months without consistent work or not. You know, I have connections with clients that I've you know, I've gained clients because I've known someone who's known someone and, you know, they've recommended me. So there are lots of ways that I have privilege. Education, you know, of course, is a huge, huge privilege. And I don't take that stuff for granted. But I also don't feel like that that somehow entitles me to a particular lifestyle. And if I don't achieve the trappings of success, as dominant society might define it, that I've, I've failed. I'm not looking for somebody else's approval. I've just got me to answer to and the communities that I choose to be part of. Hmm. And one more thing that you mentioned, like what is it like to have people, friends or con you know, connections with people who haven't left behind the institutions that I've kind of departed from? It's painful, straight up, it's painful. I've lost friendships that I just didn't feel I could maintain because I think fundamentally the difference um, is, am I living to work or am I working to live? Hmm. So I had a lot of people in my life that I deeply respect who, who are living to work. You know, they're, they're alive for their jobs. They define themselves by the work that they do. They define themselves by the profession that they're in. And that's something they say is enough for them, but I see it hurting them in other ways. I see it limiting their time with their families or limiting their time for themselves you know it, it i see them doing a lot of mental gymnastics to try to justify sacrifices they're making for the job and i wonder like well to what end you know how is this really serving you and i want to live i want to be in the sun i don't like being in depressive you know gray weather that rains all the time i appreciate the rain but i am a sun child and i need that and recognizing that need has you know, meant that I live a more peripatetic lifestyle. Like I'm not going to stay in one place year round. I need to be moving in time with the, with the sun. And, you know, again, that's a privilege, but I am not living high on the hog. I'm not out here like, you know, touring the, the resort areas, you know, it's not like that. I'm, I'm paring down my life in major ways and it's, it's been a process. Mm. Thank you for that. So you, I know you already gave us some gems. You gave us like maybe I, I, I'm I'm keeping a mental count. We're we're probably at like eight or nine. Oh wow! <laughs> but you know we're at we're near the end of the show where I say the Les Brown quote, knowing that the graveyard is the richest place on earth. It is filled with both tangible, concrete, external outputs, and also like the thank yous and the gratitude that we haven't given people that we love in our lives. So rich in all kinds of ways. So for you, you, again, you've already shared probably eight or nine, maybe 10, maybe 10. I should have been like keeping a tally track, but can you share or reshare with us the most expensive piece of advice or wisdom or thing that you do not want to take with you to the grave? I think it's a reshare. I'm going to just repeat because <laughs> it's, you know, when it's good stuff, we got to repeat it. Right. Um, right. 
I really think that if I can leave this this plane of existence having helped other actually primarily black women but women of color and femmes of color primarily to understand I am enough that will be a legacy I am really happy with and I am enough without having to point to something external from me even if that's my kids even if that's you know this item that I created or this thing that I sold just to feel that sense of I am enough and feel healthy and good and complete. If mm -hmm. I can help to advance that belief so that we stop contributing to those systems that are out for our demise, you know, that are here to mess us up. Like we don't need that. They don't need any of our help, you know? So that's, that's what I want to leave behind. I can think of ways that I want to do that, like, you know, thinking about legacy and we've talked about recording, you know, thoughts like this or conversations like this where there's a record and I think that's important. So I want to, I want to contribute in that way, but it can be through all different types of ways. You know, it can be in the conversations, it can be the unexpected conversation with a stranger. And I love knowing that those are making an impact, that those connections fleeting as they might be, that you know, I can, I've had, I've been blessed with so many fortuitous encounters with strangers. And I really feel like it's increased since I kind of went through this massive life transition from a career I thought I'd have for life or be in for life to something else. It was right around that time that I just started meeting seemingly random people and having these encounters. And again and again, they, they assured me these all these different people that I've come into contact with, they assured me that I don't know someone's story until we start talking. So I can't just assume I know something about someone from their exterior. And that I can be lit up in a 20 minute conversation with somebody that I'll never see again, that reminds me that everything I need is right here. And that encounter is made possible because I'm bringing something to it and they're bringing something to it. And in that connection that energy that we exchange that that is everything you know and that will keep me going and that will fulfill me mm. and that's not about stuff i don't need stuff to do that for me i need the opportunity to connect so connection and i am enough so i'm enough with connection <laughs> i guess it's I'm you're combining them we're, we're we're making it into one we do yeah. what we want we this is this is our time it's the podcast <laughs> that we want whatever <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we get to where you play on the internet, and really I should change the question, if you play on the internet, we'll get to that. Anything else you want to share? Anything that's coming to mind before we before we close out? Yeah, there's one more thing that I really feel like is a, a piece of life advice. So I don't want to give it as my first and foremost, but it's something <laughs> I've been having to practice because it's so true in my life is no big decisions during major life transitions. Hmm. Say to, no big decisions during major life transitions. So I sold my house, <laughs> changed my job, have a new name, radically reorganized the way I relate to people. I've made some real changes about the communities that I am part of or that I'm no longer part of. Lots and lots of things have been happening and being really tumultuous. And in the process of all that, I've you know, often tried to come up with like, okay, what am I going to do next? Where's my house going to be? Where am I going to live? What's my new job? What's it going to look like? Where am I? And there's only so much that realistically is going to work 
in the middle of the chaos, <laughs> you know? So just taking a pause and saying, I don't have to do it all at once. I can drop into my sense of, you know, self and meditation and, and really be able to focus on breathing. First and foremost, just like getting back into that centered self. And in that centering, I find an answer will often come. So what am I going to do next in this particular case? Or where do I want to put my energy next? You know, where do I feel like home is right now? And I have to understand that it doesn't have to be the answer forever, but it might be the answer for right now. It's what feels right. And I can trust that I can find the answer when I'm in that period of stillness and it'll come to me. But big decisions that are up here in the brain, like, I've decided this is the right thing to do as opposed to this feels this coming from our heart center. You know, it's like moving me into this place of safety or contentment, stillness, wholeness. Those are the places that I want my answers to come from. And um, being up in the chaotic, you know, question of well, what next, what next, you know, there's time pressing me again. That's just a social construct, you know, dominant culture has us thinking that we, we never have enough time. So I really want to be, yeah, keeping that in mind and mm. helping other people to realize they don't have to make all those decisions right away. Thank you for that. Sure. So can you let folks know where they can find you or at least what can we expect from you, uh, the writer? Or, or is there something big that you're working on? How can folks connect with you if they want to support you or say, hey, or see some of your sun-kissed pictures? Where, where, where can we find you? Where in the world am I? I recently posted something on Instagram, a picture of like, where in the world is Bayalica? Sort of like a where's Waldo? Because throughout Baja, there are all these um, cutout letters of the name of every town and they're like colorful and they're perfect, you know, Instagrammable spots. So I've only done it once. So there's no consistency to it. But on Instagram, I post as Bayalica16. Not because there are any others that I know of in the world, but just because Not 15 others, you're the... As far as I know, I'm the only one in the world with this name. And uh, so Bialik is 16 on Instagram. I don't do Facebook. I wish that I could get away from it entirely, but traveling like this, it is nice to have some connection. My LinkedIn is Bialika Macau, my last name, PhD. So just, you know, because it's still a credential that people seem to, some people care about. Big things that I'm working on, what you can see more of, what I'm really excited about is a book that I've been working on. I have a manuscript in progress that I'm very much <laughs> grateful for the support of my friends and my colleagues, my, my supporters. And the book itself has taken a lot of different twists and turns, but it is primarily looking at the harm that white women do to black women and have done historically and also personally in my own experiences. So with looking within my family at that process or that experience or set of experiences, and then trying to really focus on reducing the harms that come from that, from those cross-cultural interracial relationships. So I'm working on that and I hope to have a manuscript to send out to publishers by this summer. And it'll help to stay still long enough to <laughs> get that done. But yeah, so I'm working on that. And it will be tentatively, at this point, it's tentatively titled Peculiar Intimacy, Ooh. which is the title of a university course that I designed and taught at three different institutions and was really, really um, 
happy with the work I did with that. It, and just as a quick blurb for that, it was something that I designed to help students recognize how not that distant slavery is, that period, and how significant it is and remains to the nation's founding and the way that we think about Black-white relations and what's still happening in the aftermath that, you know, is just re repeating the same kind of history that I think folks would like to think we're done with, but we're not. And then tying that into intersectional oppression and, and really exciting ways to resist it. So ultimately, I'm riding my way to freedom, and I'm trying to bring others with me. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. This has been a, the word that was coming to mind was delicious. I don't <laughs> know if I'm just like hungry, but like, it's been a delicious conversation. Um, thank you for sharing. Thank you for going deep. Thank you for sharing personally. I just really appreciate you. Honored and humbled to have you as a guest. And I hope that we talk soon. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It is a real pleasure. It's always, always so stimulating to talk with you. It makes my brain just light up and my soul just feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> so yes, we will talk again very soon. Thank yes, you. thank you so much. And I'm back. What'd you think? This might be your new favorite episode. You might have to update that text you sent, right? So for today's takeaway, for Bayalica's Take Nothing When I Die takeaway, I really am sitting with this piece that she shared. She said, I talk to people and I'm always learning, but I also trust myself. I trust that I am the best authority for myself for my own life. I know better than anybody else what I need and what I want, period, point blank, end of story. Thank you so much, Bayalika, for sharing that with us. And I hope it encourages us to trust ourselves in the same manner. All right, y'all, it's that time. I gotta get out of here, but I cannot leave without reminding you to please share your favorite episode with five folks. It might be this one. It might be one that shares some particular frameworks that make sense for you. Whatever it is, let five people who you love know how much these episodes mean to you. We are on all major platforms, of course, the, <laughs> including the one that you're listening on. But for folks who don't know, Apple, Google, Spotify, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Send folks to the places where they typically listen to music or podcasts, and you can find us there. You can also learn so much more about not only the, our guests and what we talk about, but any information about the episode is housed on my site. So if you go to stephanieghostin.com slash TNWID, you will find the show notes there, as well as all of the major platforms, as well as donation links. For folks who want to support the production of this podcast and or my consulting and coaching work, um, you can find my PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App links there. This is Stephanie Ghost and Paul. This is your host signing off for the Take Nothing When I Die podcast. And I'm just going to go ahead and leave you with your reminder that you are a living ancestor. Please, please, please take care of yourself take care of each other and I will talk to you soon.